God uh, told him to go and marry a promiscuous woman, uh, specifically meaning a prostitute, uh, and have children with this woman, to go and start a family with her, not just to have a marriage in name only, but actually to start to build a home. Um, And then God said, because I want you to do this because I want my people to understand that Israel has been like an unfaithful wife to me. The sense of betrayal and the sense of replacement and the sense of uh, devotion misplaced, passion misplaced. Um, I want to illustrate that. And so the idea here of saying this sin, uh, what was the sin that God was illustrating in this? Remember? False gods, gods. idolatry, right? They were worshiping Baal uh, and and the the golden calves in the the north and south end of uh, the nation of Israel. And so idolatry. Now, you know, either either God is being overly dramatic or God has a point as to why idolatry is a different type of sin than other sins for his people here. And why it's a really big deal, a big enough deal that he would have a prophet go and marry a prostitute. Any idea why that sin, the sin of idolatry, is a big deal to God? That kind of a big deal? Specific rejection of him, but it's even more than rejection, isn't it? It's replacement. Kind of like someone who is betraying in marriage, someone who is having an affair outside of marriage, there's a betrayal. There's a, it's, I reject you, but I also replace you. I will give my passion and my devotion and my worship and my honor to someone else. It belongs to you, but I will give it to someone else. And so that's why God chose this picture of uh, you know, marrying an adulterous wife because he wants for people to understand it and get it. And so we saw that, that Hosea married this woman, unfortunately named Gomer. I don't, yeah, Gomer. Okay, Gomer. So uh, any thoughts before we dive in tonight? Any thoughts left over? Any what I would call afterthoughts from our discussion so far? Things that God's bringing to mind or you'd like to share or ideas? Um, just feedback from what we've talked about thus far. Before we, Tonight we're going to try to look at the three children and their names and kind of what they mean and, and where they come from. But anybody have anything they would like to insight or... Impressions, something that's stuck with you over the course of the week? I looked at some of my notes on this that I had from several years ago. And one of my notes was this is probably the darkest time in Israel's history. Yeah. And where they actually stood with God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it certainly is at the end of Northern Kingdom's existence. And so you can feel this slope getting steeper and steeper and them rolling faster and faster downhill. Very dark time in Israel's history, yeah, for sure, for sure. Anybody else? Ideas, thoughts? Yeah, Jeff. I heard in a commentary of the reading while we're doing this, uh, it said that no one has a score spoken so repeatedly of God's love for his people and cast divine grief. Yeah, which is interesting. That's an interesting categorization that no one spoke so repeatedly of God's love. And, and yet what we've read so far hasn't felt very loving, and it's going to feel less loving as we read tonight. And yet the overarching theme is God's redeeming love for us. It's what we kind of put as a subtitle to this whole study, God's redeeming love. So 
It's an interesting, he's about done with them and they're about to get into captivity and be punished for their faithlessness because God loves them so much. It, it, it's a very weird put together, but yeah, nobody else as a prophet has spoken over and over again about that. Yeah. Hosea's got to be saying, "What you want me to do? What?" Yeah. You know, and then it's completely under. It's not the character of God to do something like this when He has an abomination about that. Yeah. So there's, you know, I could see where it would kind of get everyone's attention with a big question mark. Yes. Yes. God ever done that to you? The staff doesn't work. Now we'll go this way. Yeah. Wait. Big question mark ever over your head from things God's done that. Didn't quite get, like so. I, I can put myself in these Israelites' position and be like, I don't, what, I don't understand. What, what are you doing, God? This isn't what. You, that's not. I don't understand. You know what I mean? So we can get into the sense of maybe why they were a little thick about this. Why it took three children with three names and Hosea writing a book with all these chapters to maybe break through. Uh, and this relentless pursuit of God after his people so that they would know what the deal was uh, and what was going to happen. Good stuff. Any other thoughts? I love being able to kind of dig in and reflect on this. So uh, over the course of the week, if you have something next week, we'll try, I'll try to remember uh, to come back to it. So let's pick up at um, verse 3. So he, that is Hosea, married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo Ruhama, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Interesting stuff in a book of God's love for us. That, those kind of statements and those kind of names. Um, we talked last time briefly, and, and I want to start kind of back at Jezreel here, but we talked briefly about how this was kind of a normal practice. The naming of children having some meaning. Um, you know, I have received a son from the Lord, and, and so I will name him something that means I have received a son from the Lord. Uh, in, in Isaiah's case, Meher Shalb Hashbaz, and that's got meaning to it. And, and so over and over again, in fact, the word Daniel and Joel, they end with the same E-L. Do you know why they end with E-L? Because God? It means God. El? Elohim? God. It's, it's the Hebrew name for God. So a lot of these names, when, they, when you put them together, they include a statement about Someone's belief in God, the God, God's provision or God's faithfulness or God's promise or whatever. And so they would name their children in this 
you know, reflection of their understanding of God to them. So names had some depth to it. It wasn't just like, you know, I want to name my son Mortimer. I just really like Mortimer. It just, I don't know, it doesn't mean anything. Or I knew somebody named Mortimer and he was really cool. So, you know, it was a statement, often a statement. And so it wasn't uncommon for Israelites to ask, what does your name mean? Why did your parents name you that? And so when we get to Hosea here and he names three children, three different things, it kind of makes some sense that God would use their name uh, to give a message and to send a lesson. So it says that after he married Gomer, she conceived and bore him a son. So uh, then God gives him a name and the name is Jezreel. Now Jezreel, uh, I'm going to give you something in just a minute, but I want to show you this kind of like uh, on this board so that you get a, a picture of Israel. You've got the Mediterranean Sea out here. You got uh, Mount Carmel up here. Right around here is the Sea of Galilee. Then you got the Jordan River that goes down, and then you got the Dead Sea, something like that. Okay? Uh, Jerusalem is right around here, Jericho. Uh, and Jezreel is like right about here. Okay, that's the, the, the town, Jezreel. Um, and Jezreel is situated certainly from our generalized map here in the northern kingdom. This is the northern kingdom. So it's right in the middle. And there's a lot of flat ground around Jezreel. And then it goes down into the, this is all flat ground down here. Uh, and it actually goes up some of that flat ground, some of that valley goes up a couple of places here. And it goes up almost to the place of Jezreel. There happen to be mountains right here. So there's a valley at the place where this town is situated. And so it's kind of in the center of this big, long valley, this big flat plain area. Uh, this, this plain is known by some other names, and I'm, I'm going to show that to you in a little bit. But this town of Jezreel uh, and the valley of Jezreel uh, have some significance. Um, and the word Jezreel we're going to talk about why in a little bit, but the word Jezreel and the valley of Jezreel specifically has come to mean um, a place where God sows, uh, a place where God plants, um, and specifically in judgment here, what is God going to be sowing? Destruction. Destruction. When people get destroyed, what, what goes into the ground? Blood. Jezreel becomes synonymous with blood in the ground. Like that picture of judgment and uh, death uh, and destruction. And so Hosea uses this picture of Jezreel to talk about the fact that your actions have consequences. I know this is not popular in our world today, but your actions have consequences in your life. And if you don't like your consequences, you may want to look at changing your actions. They won't always change your consequences right away. You may still be reaping from former things. But if you don't like what's happening, many times it's due to choices you have control over. Right? And so Hosea emphasizes this using this picture of the Valley of Jezreel. Because oftentimes, Israel's pain from the hand of God came in this valley came centered around this town in the valley of Jezreel. It also has the idea when it talks about Jezreel, meaning God sows, that God plants. Now, when you plant something, um, this is not the time to plant things, but if it were, I guess moms, I guess we plant moms now, right? 
But they, they were planted a long time ago, so we're just putting them in the ground now. But when you plant something, if you planted a seed in the ground, it does not immediately grow into a plant. Some things grow faster than others, but the general principle is you put it in the ground and it's not immediate results. It waits for a while. And so the, the idea of Jezreel, God sows, being that God has declared this is coming. And it's not popped out of the ground yet, but it's coming. Just as surely as that plant will sprout and grow, God has sown it, has planted it, has put it in the ground, and it's coming. And what he's saying here is God's judgment is coming on you as the people of Israel. By the way, the the Hebrew for Jezreel and Israel is so similar. Uh, There are two letters that are different, uh, which is interesting because they they sound alike in Hebrew, they sound alike in English, um, and they look alike in Hebrew, uh, which is a really unique way that God uh, and Hosea use that literary device to make Jezreel represent uh, Israel. And so God says, I want you to name your son God sows, Jezreel. I want you to name him after this town. I want you to name him after this valley. Uh, We talked last week about how uh, Jehu is the the father of the ruler of of Israel, the kingdom of Israel at this time. Um, Jehu, uh, if you go back in time, uh, we, we saw last week that in 2 Kings 10, Jehu wipes out the prophets of Baal. Uh, tricking them. He actually calls them into this valley. He sets guards at the exits to the valley, says don't let them go, and slaughters them. It is the massacre at Jezreel. But if you go back to the chapter before that, Jehu wipes out the ruling family at the time, which is how he becomes king. And the family that he wipes out is the family that was uh, Ahab's family. And God had decreed judgment on Ahab and his descendants for the wickedness that Ahab and Jezebel brought into Israel. And Jehu is the instrument of that judgment. Okay, So now when we see here, uh, I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. I will soon punish the house of Jehu. So what he's saying is, Jehu's descendant, who is now king in Israel, I'm going to punish him. Like Jezreel. What happened at Jezreel? Ahab's line ended. Uh, if you read through uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, what you find is that after Ahab dies and Jezebel dies and they feed her to the dogs, literally, at the end of chapter 9, um, they round up all of Ahab's descendants and kill all of them, saying this is the end of the line of Ahab because of the wickedness of Ahab and how it multiplied in his family. Have you noticed that your mistakes multiply in the people that you're influencing? Isn't that irritating? Did you wish they would pick up your good points instead of your bad points? They don't. They pick up, well, hopefully they pick up some of them, but it's a lot harder work to pass on your good points than to pass on your bad points. It's very easy to pass on your bad points. And so Ahab's descendants took his wickedness, and just kept multiplying it. And so God said, that's the end. My judgment is there. God sows. And in the valley of Jezreel, all of Ahab's line ended at the hand of Jehu. 
And now Jehu's been king, and he's been king. This is the third generation. Jeroboam II is the third generation. His son, uh, Zechariah, is going to be the fourth generation. And God has said to Jehu, I will have your line for four generations. And he told him this after Jehu wiped out all these prophets of Baal, which sounds like a really hopeful thing until you read the next verse where Jehu goes back and worships at Dan and Beersheba, which are golden calves, which is what Baal was, a calf, a bull. So he persisted in idolatry. And God said, because of that, you have four generations and then you will be wiped out. Just like you wiped out, you will be wiped out. And so that's God's judgment here being proclaimed yet again and reinforced on this line of Jehu. Jehu killed both Ahaziah, the descendant of Ahab, and Joram, king of Israel. He, wiped, he killed both the northern and king, uh, southern king at the same time. Goes on to wipe out Ahab's line. You can imagine this rivalry between north and south that Jehu was a hero for being able to defeat the king of the south because that was kind of a rival, and so you're a really powerful guy, and so he rose in power to be the king, uh, and then went on to wipe out all of Ahab's line. And Ahab was kind of a selfish king, and he passed it on to his kids. Um, I don't know if you remember the story of Naboth and his vineyard. Have you ever heard that story? Uh, Ahab was a king, and he went out, and he saw a vineyard, and he really liked it. And he said to Naboth, name your price. I will pay you whatever for your vineyard. And Naboth said, not for sale my vineyard. I'm going to keep it. So Ahab had him killed. And then he said, my vineyard, I'm the king. This is the kind of king that was going on in Israel, right? God placed them in positions of authority and they used that influence. They used that power for themselves instead of to help the people that were under their influence. And so that's Ahab, right? And his children coming after that. And so uh, Jehu being able to kill Ahaziah and, Jor- and Joram makes him a really big hero. But he stays in idolatry. And so uh, eventually God says, uh, your line's going to be wiped out. And after Jeroboam II dies, which is probably right around the time of this prophecy, his son Zechariah takes the, the throne and only six months into his reign, he is assassinated and their line has ended and a new line begins. Now, the new line only lasts like four kings because they're only like 20 years away from being taken into captivity. So it doesn't last really long. But the end of his line comes, just like the prophecy here. So this Valley of Jezreel, um, I want to give you a map, which I thought was really cool. Uh, And I want to give it to you uh, so you can see uh, where this is and what it looks like. And this is a topographical map. So you don't have to take one. Uh, but they're really pretty, so I would assume, I would suggest that you take one. Yeah. Um, and when you get this, this map, you got the Sea of Galilee here at the top, and then it goes down a certain chunk, probably right about to where my line is. That's what you're looking at in the nation of Israel. You can see that on this lower map. The lower map gives you like a key as to what you're looking at. Um, and so... It's a topographical map so that the, the green here that's just uh, all one color is kind of a flat area. You can see the flat areas on it, but then you can also see the mountains. You've got Mount Moriah here. You've got Mount Tabor. Down here, you've got Mount Goboa. Up here, you can just see the edge of Mount Carmel. So you can see like where the, where the topography is. 
Down here in the gray area, it is down in the Jordan River Valley. It is a low flatland. Okay? And so you kind of get a picture here of what's going on, Valley of Jezreel. This red, like, post-it up here at the top, if you'll put your eye there and kind of look down this way, ghosted in here says Jezreel Valley. Kind of right there. Okay? And down at the bottom of that, where this white piece juts in, is Jezreel. That's the town, Jezreel. All right, everybody see it? So you can see that Jezreel has this large valley that goes all the way up to the sea here. And it comes down here, and it's in between Mount Gilboa and Mount Moriah, or Mount Moray. Uh, goes in this direction here. And so there's this whole area is considered the Valley of Jezreel, named after this town, but this whole flatland here. All right? So that's kind of the area that we're looking at. Now, this is known for a couple things. First of all, Naboth's vineyard is in Jezreel. So that whole story I just told you about Ahab, that happened at the city of Jezreel. Um, Ahab's descendants in the valley of Jezreel, probably in this part of the valley, between the two mountains where it was easy to wedge them in, in this white-gray part, probably that's where he called them to the valley of Jezreel and because it was easy to keep them in, um, known for the slaughter of Ahab's descendants. There's another big thing about this that's coming someday. This valley of Jezreel has another name. Well, there's a city called Megiddo right here on this side of the valley that looks out over the valley of Jezreel. And in Revelation, we hear about the battle of Armageddon where the blood will be up to the bridle of the horse. It's this valley here. And I don't know if you have a sense of size there, but that's a fairly large piece of ground. I mean, Israel as a whole, probably about the size of the state of New Jersey here. So we're talking a, a hundreds of miles and, and like unimaginable distances, this flat plain where the armies of the world gather at the end of time uh, to come against Israel and the Messiah. And so this valley has a lot of significance on judgment as well. It is a place of judgment uh, and it is prophesied to be a very significant place of judgment. And I just thought that was really cool. So I thought I would give you a map of it. Um, this plain is also known as the, the plain of Ezdralon. It is the most fertile ground in the land. It is the place where crops grow the most easy, easily, which is probably why Jezreel took on the name originally of God sows. It is a place of God bringing abundance in harvest. It's the place God provided for us to have food and crops in abundance. Okay, Jezreel, God, God sows. It also, if you can imagine it, um, from the Mediterranean Sea, which is just up in the top corner there, down to the Jordan River and, and the middle of, of Israel, is the only place that's really a flat level ground joining the Jordan River Valley and the north. In ancient times, flat land was really important because easy to right for trade it's easy to walk through you could take camels and horses and whatever through there as opposed to going up and down mountains and carrying trade goods up and down mountains and so it was a a highway for trade it was a very strategically important place 
in ancient Israel. And a lot of wealth and um, uh, money flowed through there. It also, I mean, and it probably was the only place in all of Israel, in this whole land, where it was easy to get from the Mediterranean to the Jordan Valley. Everything else is pretty rugged. Uh, If you've ever heard of Mount Zion, right? That's Jerusalem. You know why it's a mountain there? Because it's mountains everywhere. (laughs) I mean, it's all very rugged terrain in here. And so this valley was a, you could come in, you could land, and you could take your goods down to the Jordan River, you could ship them down, or you could walk them down on the valley of the Jordan River. It was a very easy trade route for people to use. It also turned out that most armies who wanted to take over Israel did their warring in this valley because it was a flat place. They could land their troops and march in, or they could come down and, and fight in the flat ground there. And so time after time, like Gideon with the Midianites, the Midianites were in this valley, the Valley of Jezreel. Time after time, war after war, when God's judgment is poured out on Israel, it's poured out in the Valley of Jezreel. It's like interesting as you start to recognize that this is a pattern in Israel. And that's, this place moves from an understanding of green and harvest to an understanding of bloody battles and death and loss and God's hand of judgment and wrath and punishment on his people time after time. And so God says, because you name him Jezreel, it rings like that in the minds of the people who hear Jezreel. It's not just, ooh, a nice pretty valley. It's, oh, God's judgment. In other words, they wouldn't have missed this. When he named the the child Jezreel, they would have understood it to mean judgment is coming just like judgment has come in the past. They could ignore it. They could think he's crazy. I mean, after all, he married a prostitute. But they couldn't miss the meaning. Jezreel. God will judge. And so God says, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. This line of Jehu is coming to an end. I'm going to pour out, you know, cut him off. But I'm also going to bring the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, meaning this northern kingdom, to an end. And he says, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. What do you think it means, break Israel's bow? What do you think he's referring to there? Their strength? Okay. What, what, why use the word bow? I will make them weak, defeated, no defense, right? They, they might want to mount a defense, but you get your bow and it's broken. When you took over nations and you wanted them to not fight back you took their weapons or broke their weapons so they couldn't fight back even if they wanted to later on so i will break their bow i will leave them helpless defenseless vulnerable i will make it so that they lose when they are invaded i will bring an end to the kingdom of israel why because israel is an unfaithful wife She has chosen to give her devotion and her love to other gods instead of me. Now, I know we're not the nation of Israel and God doesn't rule over our country and these prophecies aren't exactly the same. I know that. But you're a child of God. Do you ever give your devotion to things that aren't Him? Devotion that belongs to Him to other things? Have you thought about what that means? I mean, if God's willing to do this with Hosea and his family and Gomer and Jezreel, Do you think God has the same heart for you? 
Do you think he feels the same sense of betrayal from us as his people? If I decide, well, I've got, you know, I love the Lord and I'm saved and whatever, but I've got things I want to do in my life. I've got gods I want to worship for a while. Do we ever stop to consider what Hosea's story tells us about how that feels for God, for our Father, for the one who sent his son to die for us, who poured out his passion for us, and we've got no passion for him. We've got leftovers for him. I'll give, I'll give to the church when I have something left over. I'll give to God the time that I have left over after I have to get everything done that I need to get done. Then I'll give him what's left over, if I have anything. I'll pour my passions into things that I, even if I took a second look at them, I would know they don't mean anything, but I'll keep pouring my passion into them. Passion that belongs to my Lord, to my King. So there's a strong message here for us to wake up to the relationship, the privilege of relationship we have with God and the passion we're called to in response to His passion for us to not just live nonchalant and you know blasé and whatever, just another day, but to live with joy, with energy, with enthusiasm for our purpose, for our relationship with our Almighty God. And so God goes to this extent that says it's hopeless for the, the northern kingdom. It's hopeless for the people of Israel. They're never going to see it. And so the only way I can get through to them is to pour out my judgment, to break their bow in the valley of Jezreel, to leave them helpless. And what do you think happened when Assyria marched in with all of their violence to the people of God and stomped all over them? What do you think the people of God did? You think they probably cried out to God, didn't they? And maybe this, these prophecies rang, rang in their ears. Maybe the only way God could ever get them to actually turn to Him with a whole heart was to break their bow in the valley of Jezreel. Does God have to break something of ours to get our full attention? Does He have to cripple us like He did Jacob? Does he have to remove any other options or put us in a desperate state for us to turn up and live like God is the one who matters? I think there's a real challenge from the people of God here, and I hope that it's something that we take. And so there's something about this valley, and I just thought it was an interesting thing to show you even the topography of it, because you know God is going to use the same place. This is an interesting thought. Help me think through this. God used this place over and over again to punish Israel when they were unfaithful. So much so that it became synonymous with God's judgment on them. Then, God prophesies that in the end, He's going to use this same real estate to deliver them. To save them from their enemies. In the same place where He poured out His judgment on them. What does that say to you? That's interesting, isn't it? That God isn't like running from our mistakes. God is redeeming our mistakes. That we don't have to blot out the places we've been that aren't okay. If we put them in God's hands, God can take those very places and turn them into eternal good. 
Isn't that incredible? And we see it. You see it with people who have maybe been deeply addicted or something, and then God takes that very addiction and turns it around to their most profitable uh, purpose in life and their ministry as they help other people because they've walked the path. And like, how does that happen? God does that, right? And so here, a place of judgment turns into a place of deliverance. God doesn't have to use that place (laughs) to deliver them, but he chooses to use that same place to deliver them to say, you know what? I've seen all your mistakes and we've dealt with that over and over again, but now you are my people forever. So it doesn't matter what's come before. It was never about your performance. It was never about whether or not you were good enough as people because you never would have been, but it's because I'm good enough as your God and I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver you. Don't you love that? Isn't that amazing? That just blows me away. Absolutely blows me away to think about that. All right. So, as they hear this prophecy of Jezreel through this child, what do you think their response is? Israel, the nation of Israel. What should it have been? Lord, save us. We've wronged you. Oh, you had to go and have this prophet marry a prostitute for us to get it. And then they had a child and you had to name it Jezreel for us to know. You're serious about judgment coming and how could we have missed it? That's what you expect to happen. That's not what happens. Nothing happens. They just roll forward. And they roll forward because somebody's out there saying doom and gloom and God is you know, trying to get your attention, but my life looks okay. Because the reign of Jeroboam was filled with prosperity and, and the superpowers to the north and the south weren't bothering them. So life's okay. And I usually define my life being okay by whether I have the money I want, whether I have the leisure that I'd like, or a hope of getting that maybe around the corner, and whether, I have, um, whether I'm healthy or not healthy, whether there's any crisis. And if none of that's going on, you say God's really upset and mad, but my life doesn't look like it. Must be okay. And on we go. It's probably why America has turned into such a difficult mission field. Because I go to people and I say, you know what, God sent his son to die for you because one day he's returning and he's going to judge this world and you're going to be in bad shape if you don't... I don't know. God doesn't seem very mad at me. I think I'm okay. I mean, all I got to do is get a job and get a degree and get it. And then hard times come and everybody, oh Lord, oh Lord. But when things are good, it kind of bounces off. May we not be the people who have hearts where the truth and the call from God bounce off. May we be people who hear and receive. You know, I can tell from my children when I'm talking to them by their voice or by their posture, what's, is something going on? Um, literally, two days ago, one of my children walked into the house and Dana looked at me and I looked at her and she said, what's up? And they went, nothing. And she said, sit down. What's up? Nothing. Okay. (laughs) Something's going on. What's got you? And we had a two-hour conversation. Because you can tell. Because you're tuned in. Because you have ears to hear. Do we have that kind of heart with our Heavenly Father? Are we tuned in to what matters to Him? To where He is? To where He's working? To where He's moving? To how His passions flow? Are we tuned in like that or not? Is 
is all of life, you know, got our attention about the matters of, did I, did I take care of the car? And did I get the kids to here? And is the homework done for them? And does dinner on the table? And is laundry done? And all, but I got no ear for God. Would to God we had messy houses but clean hearts. Right? But how quickly it's what's in front of our eyes that has our attention instead of the God who made us. And so why do we get together on Wednesday night? Why do we get together in a small group? Why do we get together on Sunday morning? Why do we talk about devotions? Because we got to recognize that's the weakness of human beings. Well, it shouldn't be, but it is. So I could sit here and say, well, you know, it shouldn't be so cold outside or it shouldn't be so warm or it shouldn't be. Well, it is, whatever it is, right? So I can't complain it out of existence. I just have to deal with what is. The reason that we have to have these practices in our life is because we drift from the passion that belongs to our God into other things, just like the people of Israel. And his word through this son Jezreel that's born to him is a word to us. Now, now it gets interesting because Gomer conceives again. It says in in verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. All right, now, is there a difference here from the first child? What's the difference? It does not say she bore Hosea a son. Most people believe that's very intentional. It doesn't tell us she had a son by another person, but it made a specific point in the first child to say she bore him a son. But this one, it feels very specifically left out. And coming on the heels of go marry a promiscuous woman, it very much feels like this is someone else's child. Now, what do you do with that? I mean, Hosea was like, okay, I'll marry a woman who's got a bad reputation and has been sexually active for money. Um, we'll have children. We'll have a son, Jezreel. We'll call him Jezreel. Okay, God, I'm doing everything you want me to do. And then the Bible seems to tell us that she turns up pregnant with someone else's child. When, when is enough enough? You know, Sunday we were talking about uh, what is a very understandable response. If, if we're talking about someone who has a same-sex attraction and, and I say to them, that's not God's designed for you. If you're a follower of Christ, you've got to, by faith, follow him down another path. That doesn't seem fair. Yeah, I get it. But somehow we, we always think that our thing is the only unique thing where God asks us to live in hard ways. I mean, look at Hosea here. You're going to raise a daughter that probably isn't yours. What does it tell us that this is recorded in Scripture and that Hosea winds up marrying someone who probably has a child from another man and is raised in Hosea's house with a name given to her by God for Hosea's prophecy. Does that say anything to you? What's that? He's a good guy. Hosea is a really good guy, yes. Very patient man, very full of faith, willing to lay a lot of things on the altar that many men would not be willing to lay on the altar. Yeah, for sure. Isn't it kind of like the relationship between God and the people of Israel who are always unfaithful to God? Yeah. They are always unfaithful to God. So if we carry that out and then she has a child out of that unfaithful relationship, what does that mean about the products 
of Israel's unfaithfulness. God still includes them because Hosea is a type of God here, right? So God still includes them. That's pretty big. What else? What's Hosea's job? Prophet, all right? So his, his, his job, if he was the prophet Isaiah, he'd be writing a big, long book. But he's the prophet Hosea, so his job is, through his family, to send a message to Israel about God and their relationship with him. That's his job. Lo Ruhama, the daughter born, is part of his job, is part of his ministry, is part of his call, is used by God to accomplish God's purpose in Hosea's life. That's ridiculous. That God would take somebody else's wrong towards you, someone's betrayal, someone's hurt, someone's wound that they put into your soul and say, you know what I'm going to do with that? I'm going to make that a part of your call and your purpose. I'm going to weave that into your life and I'm going to use it for eternal good anyway. Is God big enough to do that? Is God big enough to take someone who said something nasty about you or someone who betrayed you or somebody who did you wrong or somebody who stepped on you to get up higher or whatever, take their wrong and weave it in as part of the purpose for your life for you to do exactly what God always wanted you to do? What we do is we wind up very focused on the one who wronged us instead of the God who redeems it. And in in Hosea, I think the only way Hosea is able to walk through this is to say, God... She did the wrong thing, but you are going to use it for your purpose. So my eyes are on you instead of her. Husbands, the only way you will be the man you're supposed to be is if your eyes are on him instead of her. Right? Because if I'm, my eyes are on her, and I'm not saying I'm not giving her attention and, and deeply connected. It's not that. It's if we're going like, well, what are you doing to me? Well, what am I doing to you? What are you doing to me? It's this back and forth human balancing act. But if my eyes are on God and I'm following his example as Hosea is here, then I'm able to be the faithful husband I'm supposed to be no matter what she does. Right? And, and it kind of goes into every aspect of my life at work. If my eyes are on my boss or my coworker or my partner or my subordinates or whoever, and they're not doing what they're supposed to do, I can go back and forth with all of them. Or my soul can be at rest if my eyes are on the one who leads me, who is faithful and true, who always tells me the right thing to do, and I follow him. And so I think that's, to me, it's an incredible statement that God would use the choices of people who hurt you or betray you and use them for your life's purpose, for his glory and for what he called you to. That's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. So God says, okay, Hosea, she's part of your family. Not your daughter, but she's part of your family. So call her Lo Ruhama, which is an interesting name to give a child when it means not loved. Right? And especially an interesting name to give to a child who's not yours. <laughs> not loved. Uh, no pity. No mercy. And God says, call her that because the message behind her name is, I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Isn't that contradicting what you just spoke about? Yeah, isn't it? 
It's, it's kind of like, so now God's trying to send a message through this daughter that God says to Israel, I will no longer have love for you and I will no longer forgive you. What? What, what do we do with that? So how do we interpret a, a part of the Bible? What do we do when something sounds, as you read it, like, that doesn't make any sense. What do you do? Just turn the page, keep reading. <laughs> Just moving on, moving along. Don't understand that. Sometimes that is the thing to do. Just, you know, you get into some really weird images in Revelation, and I don't know what to do with that, and sometimes it's just move on. There's something else God has for you. Um, but if you're going to dig into something like this, you take what we know about God in the totality of the Word of God, and you use it as a way to kind of get your balance here. So is it true that God is never going to forgive Israel and will never show love to Israel? No. So that can't be what he means in it. What's he been talking about so far? You are wayward, and so what's going to happen? I'm going to pour out judgment, right? So it's in line with what's been happening. Your faithfulness is bringing judgment. So this statement is about the judgment that's coming. Let's think about that for a second. Because what we know through Jesus and, and even through prophecy of the end times, is that God has a purpose and a plan for Israel in the end. But these people in this moment identified themselves as God's chosen people, instruments of God's blessing, people who, who had a, a right to God and truth and were cleaner, those, those dirty Gentiles. Don't even touch them or you'll get dirty spiritually because they're so dirty, they'll make you dirty. This mentality of we're special, we're loved, we are higher notch up from everybody else. This is their mentality, this is their mindset. And so what they did is they felt like they had the license to do whatever they wanted because we're the favorite favorite kid. God loves us. They got a hold of this idea of God's grace in that God picked us. He picked us. But they turned it into a, a reason to be proud and presumptive and careless and reckless. And so what they thought of themselves as, as the people that God favored and God loved, but it's also what gave them the license to go and worship Baal and feel like nothing was going to happen. To go put a, a golden calf at Dan and Beersheba and go worship them, like Whatever. God loves us. We can do whatever we want. That attitude ever take place in the church? Well, God loves us. We're forgiven. We're good. We can do whatever we want. Because what's God going to do? He already forgave us. So this, this moment, God's saying to them, you are wrong to think about yourselves like that. So a time is coming when that will not be the case. He says, I'm going to act opposite of your understanding. You think you're loved, so you are invulnerable and and untouchable. What I'm saying is that you're going to feel unloved. You're going to not feel favored. Um, God is going to talk here about the experience of his love. It will soon feel like Israel is unloved and unfavored. I will not show them love. I will not 
overlook their wrong. This wrong of idolatry that they have perpetuated again and again, I am done overlooking it. You think that because I love you, I'll just overlook it and keep going. But because I love you, I'm not going to overlook it anymore. I'm going to come deal with it. Because your life can't be fulfilled when your attention that belongs to God is on things that aren't God. Sometimes we get the sense in our soul that something's not right. Just don't feel right. I'm in a funk or whatever. And maybe it's your physical health or the weather or something happened or whatever. But many times it's an indication that my attention and my focus and my priorities in life have gotten out of whack subtly over time. And I just didn't see it. But now I'm feeling it. I'm reaping some of that harvest. And I can go, well, I'm just favorite of God, so it doesn't matter. Or I can dig into that and say, where, where is my attention where it ought not be? Or where isn't my attention that it should be? And get back to that. Instead of presuming on the love of God, understand that that love is motivating. That love is transformative for us. And we should live in the love of God in that way. And so this sentence about I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them, is, is meant um, show love, right? Not that I no longer love them, I will no longer show love to them. Right? And then the word forgive there um, is, is a word for take away. And, and often, most of the time, we mean take away the sin, forgive the sin. And it can mean that. In, in this context, you have decided to bow down to idols. I will no longer take that sin away. I'm going to let, let that sin sit there and judgment's going to come on you because of that sin. It can mean that. But a lot of people believe that this word forgive means to take away in terms of I will take them away from where they are. I will, I will have Assyria come in and take them away, which is literally what happened. Literally, they were taken away from their homeland by another country, picked up and carried away. Their king and all kinds of people carried out of Israel. And so God says, I won't show them love. It won't look like I love them. And I will take them away from where they are. And so there's this idea of God calling his shot. But now, as, as harsh as that is, look what he says next. Yet, I will show love to Judah. <laughs> I will not show love to you, Israel. You're going to get it. But I will, if it could be like a little more salt in the wound. But Judah, I will show them love. I will make sure that they, they know that they are loved. And, and what he says, it's really, really interesting. What he says is, their deliverance will be directly through God. He, what does he say it won't be through? All the like armed forces stuff, right? Not horses, not battle. Not going to be any of that. It's going to be through, I will save them. Contrasted to, I will defeat you, Israel. I will break your bow. I will make you defenseless. But in Judah... I will save them. And it won't be through their army. It's going to be through me. Really, really interesting stuff. Because in the story of Judah's dealing with Assyria at about the same time, just a few chapters later, 2 Kings 18 and 19, Hezekiah is a king, one of the famous kings of the Bible and one of the great kings of the Bible. They just found a coin, I think last year, in Jerusalem with Hezekiah's name on it, which was a huge 
uh, archaeological find because it verified the king Hezekiah, who is often thought to be a myth uh, in, in the Old Testament. I love how people just, oh, that's a myth. That's just a myth. Then you find a coin. Well, I guess it wasn't a myth. Maybe it was just an exaggerated story. You know, got to go that direction. So Hezekiah is dealing with Assyria. Now, Assyria is a superpower, and they march into Israel and destroy it. They rip apart their capital, Samaria, and just destroy the town. Then they come down, and they start to like threaten Judah. They're, they're, they've occupied these lands, and they're coming down, and they're going to threaten Judah and Jerusalem, where Hezekiah reigns. And so Hezekiah makes a deal with them that he will pay taxes and, and tribute to the Assyrians, and they will leave him alone. And so they do. He pays them a hefty uh, tax or whatever, and they go away and leave him alone. So it would feel like God delivered them without armies and all that stuff. But it gets better. Because Assyria comes down to uh, lay siege to Jerusalem. And so what you do when you lay siege in the ancient world is you surround the city, you cut it off from anyone being able to go in or out, so that they are basically having to live by whatever they have on hand until it's gone. Um, you weaken them, you isolate them, and then you destroy them. And the army of Assyria was, you know, with Egypt, the two greatest armies in the world at the time. And so they come down to Jerusalem to overthrow Jerusalem. We took uh, Israel, now we're going to take Judah. Uh, and I'm, we're going to just jump back, because I think this is so cool, to Second Kings 19. Right? So now, in, in chapter 19, um, well, chapter 18, Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. All right? And so he's standing around, and from verse 19 down to verse 25 is him saying, you guys are sunk. It, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt that splintered a reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Now I'll make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. You are so weak, you don't even have riders for horses if I gave them to you. He's outside the city taunting them, right? So Hezekiah is all up in the, in the city with all of his men and everything, and, and they're, they're you know, verse, chapter 19, verse 1. When Hezekiah hears this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Lord, what do we do? Hezekiah prays. And then Isaiah shows up and prophesies that Sennacherib will fall. That this siege is not going to work. That Sennacherib is going to fall by the hand of God. So go down with me to the end of the chapter, verse 35. And it says this, after Isaiah gets done his prophecy. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. This is why people say that Hosea's prophecy has been editorialized later. It's so specific 
And it's so specifically fulfilled that it's like, yeah, you can't call shots like that. But what Hosea said is, you will be saved. I will stand up for Judah and I will fight for them miraculously. It won't be by war. It won't be by weapons. It won't be by horses. I will do it. And then we read this, where the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians overnight. And and the statement is, and they wake up in the morning and there were the dead bodies. (laughs) Like, And then it says, almost like, duh, Sennacherib retreats to, to his capital and stays there. You think? Right? Like, if you came down to assault a city and you taunted them and said, you think your God's going to save you, your God can't save you, and then the next day, 185,000 of your troops are dead on the ground where they sleep, I'm not going back there. I don't know what's going on there, but I don't want that place. I'm going to go home. Right? And then the, the rest of this is also very interesting because to overthrow Sennacherib, Israel... Judah didn't have to do a thing. One day, Sennacherib, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, his son, his sons, uh, Adramelech and Sharazer, killed him with a sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. God destroyed his army, and God took him out, and Judah did nothing. It's crazy, Right? Now, in that whole thing, Hosea prophesies it in Lo Ruhama, a child that's not even his. God uses the birth of this daughter to give her a name that says, you think you are able to presume on my love and do whatever you want and anything you do will be fine. It's not okay. And a time is coming where I will stop showing you love and I will show you something else. And it's going to be devastating. I'm going to, there will be no more Israel and I'll break your bones. But then he says, but I will show love. He just puts this in. I will show love to Judah and I will deliver them. I won't deliver you, but I will deliver them. And, and it turns out exactly like he said. Not through armies, not through battles. Isn't that cool? I love that. All right, and then basically the third child is a similar thing and there's not a lot to it. Um, but it's kind of the setup for where we'll go next week. So we'll, we'll just talk about this real quick. It says, uh, after she had weaned Lo Ruhama, Gomer had another son. Again, no mention of Hosea. So probably another illegitimate child, another illegitimate son. And interestingly, God says, I want you to name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. Okay, so a son that is not mine gets a name that represents God saying, you are not my people anymore. I will not show you. And some of that is when God says, I won't show you love, I won't cover it with my mercy. There's an illustration there that all of us should be very aware of that without the mercy of God, none of us would be his people. None of us earned this place in the family of God. We we didn't learn enough and work enough to become children. He graced it to us. And so without his grace, we wouldn't be, right? God, God says, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Is that literally true that Israel is no longer the people of God and God is no longer their God? 
that there are some, and I will tell you this kind of to close it, and we'll pick this up next week to talk about that more, but there are many who believe that the ending of Israel here, and specifically the ending of Israel after the rejection of Christ, stopped God's relationship with Israel. And now God has transferred that to his people in the New Testament, which is the church. So you can go into the Old Testament and you can read these promises about a land and all this other stuff. And that's all now for the church because we are spiritual Israel. And they'll cross-reference it into Galatians 3 where you know people who are really children of Abraham are people who are children of faith like Abraham was and stuff like that. Um, and so there's this, this pretty large divide in terms of uh, eschatology and even just the, the doctrine of God and his people, soteriology, um, that, that divides over this idea that God has rejected Israel and has nothing more to do with them or God is going to come back to them. And so we'll see what Hosea has to say about that uh, when we pick it up next week, finish up chapter one and get into chapter two. All right? Okay, before we go tonight, 